0: I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is Sam Goldman, co-founder of d a company that sells affordable solar lighting and power to consumers in developing countries. Roughly 20% of the world population does not have access to reliable electricity. d is focused on providing cleaner, cheaper, safer lighting and energy in over 60 countries. Sam started d in 2007 with Ned Tozen, whom he met at Stanford Business School. Prior to starting d Light, Sam served in the Peace Corps in Benin, West Africa. Welcome. Thank you. Your first foray into the developing world was not in the Peace Corps uh, after college. You grew up with a family who caused you to live in several places. Your mother, uh, for example, was focused on maternal health, right? Yes. And your father on agriculture. What are some memories you have of that?
1: Uh, well, a lot of them, especially when I was growing up, were some of the amazing vacations we took, actually. So, you know, flying into a drug trafficking strip in the Amazon rainforest. You have to take a boat up the Amazon for three, four hours, and it's just surrounded by you know, animals howling at night. Things like that, which were, you know pretty unusual and very sticky in the child's mind.
0: What are some uh, impressions of you know what your mother did, for instance, that stuck with you outside these uh, exotic vacations? Right.
1: Um, well, I just remember, especially in, in India, she got a plaque saying, you know, thanking her for making a contribution to the lives of 10 million women and children in India. And it was sort of like, a, oh, my gosh, my mom's doing this really interesting work. And she wasn't trying to make huge technological shifts. She was trying to get make sure that women understood that they should breastfeed.
0: How was the experience at the Peace Corps different from what you expected since you had tangentially been in this world previously?
1: Um that's a good question. There's no substitute for actually doing it and living it yourself. You can theor you can read about it, you can watch movies about it, you can theor theoreticize about it. But when you go out and actually do it and you live there and you feel the seasons and you eat the same food everybody else does and you go and you work in the fields and, and see how long and how much effort it takes to grow yams and then to turn them into a food and, and, and how unreliable your source of income is when you're dependent on the weather and the, and the crops and food prices globally, all these little things that after a while you start to really understand what is important to people.
0: And it was in the Peace Corps where you had your first experience with kerosene lamps, uh, where you discovered how ineffective and dangerous they are, and that had a deep impact on you. What was your exposure to kerosene lamps firsthand?
1: And when you're in the Peace Corps, in, in many countries, certainly in West Africa, you're given a, you're issued by the government a, a kerosene lantern. And so I used that for my three and a half years of Peace Corps service. Mm. Uh, and you don't want to use it. And, so, and the, really the game-changing experience for me was when a a friend had bought from Walmart or Kmart or somewhere an LED headlamp and they left the country and I got their headlamp and so I, I just switched over and started wearing this headlamp at night and all of a sudden I could see things and I could cook inside and I, I didn't I wanted to read because it was more pleasant and I didn't feel sort of uh, light-headed when I was reading under the lamp, and so, and that's when I started like writing LED companies and and saying, hey, here's this unmet market need. Can I distribute for you? We got to make this happen. And, and just with these LED lamps, just with simple battery-powered LED lamps, and saying, well, like, why isn't this? Why is there? There's a total market failure. Why isn't this happening? And literally, not one person responded to an email or a letter.
0: So, when did the idea for a solar uh, lamp arrive?
1: The thing that really tipped me over the edge, my next door neighbor, he was a 15 year old boy at the time, he got in a, he had a kerosene fire accident and he almost died and he got third degree burns all over his body, but he survived and he's, he's fine now. Um, but that got me researching. I found out that like a million people a year die from kerosene fires. Once it starts, it spreads all over the place. It causes a lot of harm. So people are they're scared of kerosene. They're spending a lot of money on it. It's unhealthy for them, um, and it's really a terrible source of light. It doesn't. It's not actually very bright. Solar is magical. It's you put it outside, and it just delivers you free power. And this notion that you're not going to be dependent on somebody else to charge, and you don't have to. Walk or drive to a charging station, and you won't have this constant outlay of cash. It totally changes the game. They've never been had; they've never had independent power control over their power independently before.
0: So, you had this grievance with kerosene lamps, kind of in your back pocket, mm-hmm. as you made your way to Stanford Business School. How does a biologist and a Peace Corps enthusiast uh, decide to go to business school?
1: I wasn't planning to go to business school. I was when I was in Peace Corps essentially I, I was I was and I was an anti capitalist. I was this biologist, environmentalist, I had ridden my bike across Canada kind of doing this climate change route. I was doing all these things. And then when I got to Benin I realized the only thing that was really really changing the country and changing it quickly was business. Not none of, but a lot of the NGOs and the public sector activities I was seeing in my distant village of two thousand people, they just weren't having the same impact. So I decided I wanted to go become a social entrepreneur and applied only to the schools that were really on the vanguard of that. And Stanford was one of them.
0: So I was told that you uh, used to have a beard. You used to wear a lot of (laughs) necklaces. What did uh, Sam look like 10 years ago?
1: Gosh. Well, so I didn't have any money um, uh, and I didn't have anybody I had to impress for any reasons. So, you know, I wore a lot of the local garb. So very long, flowy clothes um, you know, my best friend in my village was a tailor. You know it could be a living ro- it could be patterns of a living room all over my body, or like I you do know like bananas or like it was really sort of fun. you know if you've seen West African clothes they they're beautiful and they're gorgeous and they're, they're creative. Um, yeah, and a big beard and sometimes colored hair and you know just I was having fun.
0: This is your Peace Corps years. These
1: are my Peace Corps so years. So yeah. come
0: comes Stanford Business School. How long did that last?
1: Uh, oh well you know you drive up that palm lined boulevard and and you know every leaf that falls off a tree gets somehow miraculously swept up by someone somewhere it's hard to be quite so and and you don't realize you, you just you know we're humans right we adapt to our circumstances so when I was in a village there's no washing machine anywhere you do it by hand nothing ever gets clean and so that was just the way I kind of was but then once I'd shifted focus yeah I, I, I Kind of cleaned up my act. <laughs>
0: hmm. I'm Jessica Harris, you're listening to from scratch. My guest is Sam Goldman, co-founder of Delight, a company that produces solar lighting and energy products to consumers at the bottom of the pyramid in developing countries, where one out of three people does not have access to reliable energy. The idea and prototypes for Delight grew out of a class that Sam took at Stanford Business School with co-founder Ned Tosum called Design for Extreme Affordability. Now I say it was out of the business school, but it was really out of the Stanford Design School uh, where pioneer David Kelly, he founded this program. Can you talk to me about how the idea went from just that to something more concrete uh, in, in, that, in that space?
1: Yeah, Absolutely, the, uh, the design school was almost a startup within, within Stanford the first semester was essentially learning how to do design and human-centered design the way IDEO kind of teaches it, with all sorts of mini projects. And then the second semester was we had a, a client, a, a customer, which was an NGO based in Myanmar. And we had to go and actually produce a produce something valuable for them that they could take to market. Uh, and they worked in the water space predominantly. And for whatever reason, there was a small group of us who we just weren't as excited about doing something in the water space, and we really wanted to do energy. And I personally was f- pushing a lot for doing something in energy because I had been in Peace Corps, and I had lived for a couple years with a kerosene lantern. And I knew that there were better options, and so. I And and I knew that was true also in Myanmar. And so we kind of coalesced and talked to this NGO about whether we could go and, and would they be interested if we could come up with a better source of lighting than what the typical population in Myanmar would have. If we could design something, would they be interested in taking it to market? And they said, yes, that would be a good project. Let's do it.
0: What did you discover in Myanmar specifically because of the totalitarian government?
1: I mean, the country... Uh used to be a source where people would go to Myanmar for edu- higher education. All over South Asia was recognized. There was actually a, somewhat of a grid that went out to these villages and there was electricity and it's all fallen apart. They didn't even have kerosene, which is sort of the worst form of lighting for most people in the world, but you, kerosene was banned. So mm-hmm. people would burn diesel as their only source of light if they could get it. Or if you didn't want to burn diesel, which is, you can imagine, pretty noxious way to live your life, you would pony up for very expensive tiny little candles that would burn quickly. Um, And then if you had a little more money and wanted to splurge, you could buy these really noxious lead acid batteries, which would run for like a day or two. And they would charge them up on these massive like 1920s, 1930s generators. Uh, And they would tell us like, oh, yeah, you know, you know that the batteries are being charged well if the acid is boiling. The whole thing was so amazingly wrong and, and backwards that it really it blew our minds and i think the story some of the stories were what allowed us i think ultimately to get some of the venture funding we got in the valley
0: what are some of those stories?
1: You know, I, we, uh, so we participated in this one thing called the DFJ Venture Challenge. DFJ
0: being, being Draper Fisher, a leading venture firm in venture the Valley. Venture firm.
1: And what they do is they take all the winners of the various business school competitions and they pit them all up against each other in this one DFJ Venture Challenge. We went in to just sort of tell the human story. And the story we told was about a woman named Mia. And we had gone to her village and left them some very early prototypes, Look, nothing like what we have now. It was a large family and they would just, essentially get up at like 10 p.m., go out, dig up the earth, and work all night making these mud bricks, which they sold for half a penny each later. Mm-hmm. And they would have to work all night and then get done in the morning and leave them out so that during the, during the day they would get baked by the sun and then they could sell the bricks. And so these lights completely changed their lives. But she literally started crying when we said, you know, we have to take these prototypes back. They don't, they're not gonna work long-term. This is just something we put together. This is like one lady out of two billion <laughs> and this is going to matter and it's gonna matter a lot.
0: What did the initial prototypes out of the D school look like?
1: Yeah, there were I mean, and obviously the D school methodology is get it done and get it get it done fast and learn as quickly as you can, right? So I mean we just had we you know, a bo- you'd slap a battery into a box and run a naked wire off it to a little circuit board with some LED soldered to it. I mean it was not a consumer product in any way, shape, or form. And we just wanted to experiment with how much power, how much light is enough, what are kind of the price points that we need to hit. Uh, to make this to make this viable. And then also, is it does it have to be solar? Can it can it be a combination of, you know, just fast charging technology or batteries or not?
0: Distribution was harder for you than you had expected. Can you talk to me about what that landscape is? Because that's really the gating factor in a way.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't realize that the, you know, uh, the average base of the pyramid family or, or individual is not a consumer. A lot of them are subsistence farmers, they grow their own food, Um, they buy just a few essentials that they absolutely need. They are used to word of mouth and they're used to testimonials that come from people they trust, not from companies uh, that come from some other land. Um, And that's... That is the hard and expensive part: is to get out and actually build a new category that does not, did not exist even a couple of years ago.
0: Can you give some examples of just firsthand experience that you had in educating?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, and you know, we were so we were at this award ceremony yesterday, and, and one of those speakers who came uh, and we're honored to have him was the CEO of SKS Microfinance, uh, which is one of the world's largest microfinance institutes, and and we have partnered with them. And we originally started when I did in 2008 when I went to India because. Uh, microfinance loan officers are actually going out into the deepest communities, and you know groups of women come once a week and meet together, uh, mm-hmm. and they distribute loans of $200 or less to these women, but it's an opportunity to say, here's a new technology, and it's coming from somebody they trust, mm-hmm. who they know and have known for many weeks, and to say, here it is, here's how it works, if you'd be interested, we'd be able to offer it to you on some kind of financing so that it doesn't become a burden, and they can go and try it and experience it, and that's an example of a distribution channel which has been very very powerful for us and a very good partner
0: Another partner for for you is the French company Total who are they
1: Uh, Absolutely. So that's another, you know, a really interesting one that you wouldn't immediately think about. But, you know, Total has an interest in being an energy company, not just in being an oil company, even though that, you know, I don't know exactly their revenue split. But they have uh, retails, almost like mini marts, gas stations all over the world. And they have a very high concentration of them in uh, Africa and South Asia also. Uh, And so we've partnered with them to be able to put our lights into their Stations, which is a trusted, well-known place that people can go to if they want to buy the technology.
0: The price of uh, your technologies range from is it seven dollars to forty dollars, depending upon what what you're selling. Is that?
1: Uh, it really ranges from probably around eight to ten dollars on the low end, up to. Uh, you know, just south of two hundred dollars for a solar home system with multiple lights, and you know, running a radio and charging cell phones and doing other things.
0: Do you remember your first customers?
1: Yeah, we had first customers. I mean, we had sold things before we moved overseas. We were working out of a garage in Mountain View. I mean, we were kind of the typical startup. Uh, and I remember we, we had sold things before we even had products. So I had sold into, I think it was the Emphasis Foundation in India. And when I think about it now, it's ridiculous, right? We hadn't made, we hadn't finished making the product. We certainly hadn't shipped it. And when we did try to ship it, this is before, like we didn't know any the details of international business. You have to get all these permits. And you can't just bring a product into a country. And we didn't have the the VAT certificate. All this stuff. So it was a pretty steep learning curve. I would be really excited to redo another business at some point where I don't have to go through all these learnings and can just get it right the first time.
0: We're talking a little bit at 10,000 feet on the impact that these lights and these products have had. Can you talk to me on a more granular level on how you've changed uh, these people's lives?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, we were – this was in – Uttar Pradesh in India, which is uh, one of the largest states, and, and we were coming back uh, and talking to a farmer at night, and he was saying, oh, and he was using Hindi, and I don't know the exact phrase, but he was essentially saying, thank you, Delight is almost like a god. It's, you know, thank you so much for having brought this. I was coming back, and a snake almost bit me, but I saw the snake because I have your light, and then proceeded to tell us all these stories of other people who'd been bitten by snakes uh, and leading to, you know, often fatal
0: Accidents. I heard that you were bit by a snake at some point and you had a kerosene lamp. Okay. Yeah,
1: I did. I did actually during Peace Corps walk in. I was because you know, with a kerosene lamp, you can't really see anything. So I did walk into my house once and got bitten by a snake, dropped the lantern, it smashed. I'm sitting in the dark. I know I've been bitten. And it turned into quite an adventure because. My health center didn't have any vaccines and a friend of mine like put me on the back of his motorcycle, drove me seven kilometers. I get to this health center and the, and the guy says, oh, great. Yeah, I have I actually have the serum for you um, and you're really lucky because somebody came in last week for it, but they couldn't afford it. So I couldn't give it to them. Huh. It's like, oh, gosh,
0: you've spent the majority of your time in the developing world. You're living in Vancouver now in Canada, but you were living in India prior. How long were you in India after business school and getting this off the ground?
1: After business school, uh, I moved to India. My co-founder moved to Shenzhen, China, and essentially, I started up the sales and marketing. I was running product development, and he was doing more operations and finance part of the company. Um, so I was in India for a couple of years, but I'd actually done my high school there, so I had some familiarity and and knew some people in India. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Then I moved to Hong Kong and opened the office there as we started to expand more internationally. Uh, and now I live in, in Vancouver um, because my wife, I'm half Canadian. My wife's also Canadian. And
0: Speaking of your wife, I was wondering uh, what your kind of uh, private social life uh, was life, uh, you know, because you've you've had a nomadic existence. And then I saw you walk into the office here uh, with your wife, Rosie, who is pregnant. It's nice to see that that part of your life was <laughs> able to be enriched simultaneous with, uh, you know, your your professional one. How did you meet your wife? How uh, did you meet we Rosie? We met
1: originally, yeah. We, I met Rosie, an undergraduate, uh, and we were together. Uh, and there was something just magical about the way we were. But school ended. We both went our separate ways and sort of kept in touch with each other maybe once every five years or so. Um, but a group of friends from undergraduate, we do kayaking trips every once in a while. Now we've turned it into a habit in, in British Columbia and Canada. And so we saw each other one year. And the next thing I know, She was coming over to Hong Kong on a one-way ticket, and things (laughs) went from there.
0: What do your parents make of of all this?
1: Oh, of course, they're ridiculously excited and proud of all the work that we're doing. And it's, it's so much an extension of what they had done beforehand, just opening up their you know, they had very good personal relationships with people all over the world, whether it was in India with the business or, or health communities or whether it was in Rwanda with the you know, government communities and just being able to link me back into those families and individuals. Because in the end, whether it's business or whether it's development work, it's all personal.
0: So they had a they had a vast Rolodex.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Isn't it
0: interesting how we use the term Rolodex now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've spent your life shifting back and forth between developing countries and, you know, Canada or the United States. What do you find most striking when you return to, let's say, Vancouver?
1: How lucky we are. <laughs> yeah, the world's not fair, the work that people have to do for a couple dollars a day.
0: Even in your daily in your daily life, like what do you find striking? Well,
1: landing you know, you land in Vancouver if you're coming from Beijing or you're coming from New Delhi, and all and it's like you have to squint because it's so bright and the sun, like the sun's just blaring, and it's so clean and pure, and the air is so, you know, it's a like little thing, the, the air is so pure. Like where else do I get this kind of air that I can breathe, which you'd think everybody would get? And it's so silent. The streets are more or less empty. Nobody's bothering me, and I can go home to my house where I can drink the water out of the tap, and it's just all these really kind of banal stuff which we take totally for granted but everything works mm-hmm.
0: thank you very much for joining us thank you my guest has been sam goldman co-founder of delight if you would like to learn more about the show please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. you can also follow us on twitter at jess g harris or find us on facebook i'm jessica harris this is from scratch